Well, hey, Heritage family, how are we doing? Well, it is so good to be with you this weekend. Um, I am thankful for the privilege that we have to get as one family in multiple locations uh, to continue to worship together as we engage the word of God. And I have to tell you, I am in awe and am humbled by what God is doing in our midst. And as we've approached this weekend, I have been praying that as we come into God's word with a sense of hunger and desperation, whether you're here in Rock Island, uh, in Bettendorf, joining us in Kiwani or, or online, I have been praying that as we approach God's word with a sense of hunger and desperation, that our God will interact with us, that we will hear from him and encounter him in ways that are beyond whatever we could ever ask or imagine. You see, when we approach him with the posture of desperation, our God shows up. And as I've been praying and we step into the word together today, I do so with great anticipation that our God is going to do just that. And so I am so glad that you're here. Over the last month, we've been having a number of conversations about key building blocks that are essential for you and I to, to build with as we seek to live the life that God created for us and he desires for us. Now, as we've been having those conversations, we've specifically been talking about a guy named Nehemiah, all right, a godly man who lived out a number of these building blocks that we've been talking about. And so today, as we jump into our conversation and kind of continue that journey, I want to take a look at one of the great promises in Scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So check this out, verse 9 and 10. It says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. I love this passage of scripture. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Those who love him with that authentic love that we talked about last week. Those who live out these key building blocks that we've been talking about together. You see, Nehemiah got to see something happen that most people thought was utterly impossible. The walls of Jerusalem that had been in ruins for 150 plus years. The walls that many had tried to rebuild over and over and over but failed. He got to see them rebuilt. And you may ask, well, why? And it's simply because Nehemiah lived out these building blocks that we've been talking about. And that's why these conversations are so vital for us as followers of Jesus and for us as a church. And now you may have missed one or two along the way, or maybe you're here for the first time this weekend. And I encourage you, go back online, heritageqca.com, click on the media tab, because you don't want to miss the conversations that we've had. But by way of just a quick recap to kind of catch us up to speed, Nehemiah was a great man of God who had a significant position of influence. You see, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in a land far away from Jerusalem. And as a cupbearer, Nehemiah's role essentially was he would, he would drink the wine or eat the food of the king before the king. Now, I think that's a pretty good gig. I don't know about you, right? Um, but I think that's a pretty good gig. But here's the deal. That role was significant because if somebody was trying to poison the king, Nehemiah would be the one who ultimately would die before the king. So this role was one of prominence and in proximity to the king, but it required significant trust. Well, one day as Nehemiah was going about this task, uh, just a normal day, a group of men and one who he, he considered a brother came from Jerusalem and he shared, they shared the news that the walls in Jerusalem were in ruins, that the gates were burned down. And the scripture says that Nehemiah, upon hearing this news, keep in mind, he had never been to Jerusalem. He had never met the people there. But when he heard this news, he was absolutely wrecked, absolutely broken. In fact, the scripture says that he wept. 
And it was in that place that Nehemiah, from a posture of brokenness, began to live out spiritual intensity. The scripture says that for over four months, listen, for over four months, Nehemiah wept and he prayed and he fasted to God. He cried out to God on behalf of Jerusalem, but also cried out to God that God would give him favor with the king. And as a result of over four months of expressing spiritual intensity through prayer, God opened a door for Nehemiah to ask the king for permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And as a result of Nehemiah's willingness to take a faithful risk, God stirred in the hearts of the king. And the king granted him not only permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, the king provided everything that was needed. The wood, he even provided men to come alongside Nehemiah to protect him. And so as a result of his faithful risk and the king's provisions and permission, Nehemiah set out on the passionate mission, the divine purpose with divine power that God had, had called him to. And Nehemiah makes the trip to Jerusalem. And as he arrives, Nehemiah faces significant persecution. But because of this authentic love that Nehemiah had for God and for others, he was able to remain and to persevere. And so that's where we kind of jump in together today. And the key truth for under, us to understand today is that all of these things that Nehemiah did, he could have expressed on his own, right? He could chase after God with the spiritual intensity and pray and fast. He could take a faithful risk. He could jump in and be a part of the passionate mission that God was, was inviting him into. And, and he could love God and others with an authentic love. But can I tell you today, if Nehemiah wouldn't have lived out what we're going to talk about this, this weekend, it is, I am almost certain that the walls would have never been rebuilt. Or at least they wouldn't have been rebuilt as quickly as they were. You see, because Nehemiah was faithful to live these things out, he was positioned to invite others into the story that God was writing. Because he was faithful to do these things, he was positioned to invite those in Jerusalem to come alongside him and to join him in hopeful partnership. In hopeful partnership. You see, because of Nehemiah's faithfulness here, Others were invited into what God was doing. In fact, we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, Nehemiah, after he has, he has fasted and he has prayed, after he'd taken a risk and talked to the king, and the king gave him permission, he gets all of the resources, he makes the trek to Jerusalem, all right? He gets to Jerusalem, he walks around the walls for a few days examining what's going on. Then he gathers all of the people in Jerusalem, and this is what he says to them. Check it out in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. It says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, Nehemiah said, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now let me pause there for a minute. Because I, I happen to wonder, sometimes when I read scripture, I go, I wonder what the people in Jerusalem were thinking at that moment. All right, they're all gathered there. They're listening to Nehemiah. And I can't help but wonder. I mean, these are people that had been surrounded by these broken walls their entire lives. I mean, the broken walls would have meant significant um, uh, just fear and anxiety and when, would have been the source of great shame and guilt in their life, among other things. And, and I am certain that almost every one of them there in some way, shape, or form had thought about in their lifetime about rebuilding the walls. In fact, many of them maybe had already tried and had failed. And I can't help but think that as Nehemiah has all of these people around him and he is sharing this, this call and this invitation to come in, if there wasn't a group of people that sat back with their arms folded and said, not happening. You know what? I've been there. I've done that. This is not going down. But then something begins to change. 
between verse 17 and verse 18, God begins to shift their hearts. Check this out. It says this, verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. It's as if Nehemiah goes on to share them the story about how God had gone before them, how he had given them favor with the king, how God had provided everything that was needed. And then look what happens. We see this shift in their heart. It says, they replied, let us, let who? Let who? Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. You see, Nehemiah goes on to share with them his journey of spiritual intensity and faithful risk and passionate mission and authentic love. And as Nehemiah begins to share the doubt that the men and women that were listening to his voice had most likely for the whole lifetime began to dissipate. And it was replaced by a renewed faith. In the face of great despair that they had lived in their whole life, hope began to break forth. And listen, for the first time in generations, for the first time in generations, there was a sincere expectancy that the walls could be rebuilt. There was a sincere expectancy of what can be. And out of that expectancy, they were able to lock arms with Nehemiah and say, you know what, we're in. Because of that, they were to join, able to join him in hopeful partnership. Because at the key, one key to understand about hopeful partnership is the reality that hopeful partnership is rooted in expectancy of what can be. Hopeful partnership is rooted in the expectancy of what can be. In fact, I would tell you if partnership is rooted in anything else, ultimately it'll fall apart and it'll fail. I mean, think about it this way. This is Super Bowl weekend. Any football fans in the room? All right, two of you, that's good, all right? <laughs> so it's Super Bowl weekend, and, and, and when game time comes, two teams with 53 men will walk out onto that field, right? And for months, this has been a journey that's taken months. It's been marked by, I mean, by great sacrifice, by great pain, by blood and sweat and tears, and at least for one team, deflated footballs, right? <laughs> but I guarantee you, that when they take the field that night, every player on the Philadelphia Eagles and every player on, the, on that other team, the New England Patriots, will have a sincere expectancy that at the end of that game that they will hoist the Lombardi Trophy. Because hopeful partnership is rooted in an expectancy of what can be. And we see that in the story of Nehemiah. In fact, uh, if you get a chance, I'd encourage you to, to read Nehemiah chapter 3. You see, after Nehemiah shares the journey and, and the, those in Jerusalem say, hey, let's get to work. Let us rebuild the wall. Nehemiah 3 is this long list of names uh, of people in places where they served. I mean, it's this great picture of hopeful partnership rooted in expectancy at work. It's an incredible story. I mean, it, it's, an, it's a diverse group of people. In fact, if you read Nehemiah 3, it says that, you know, there were priests who were serving next to those who were lay people. There were men serving alongside women. There were people that grew up in Jerusalem and lived in Jerusalem, serving alongside those who didn't live in Jerusalem, but were from the outside in the community who had a passion and a heart to see the walls rebuilt. There were men that were skilled in craftsmanship and, and all that kind of stuff, serving next to people that had no idea what they were doing, but they knew how to make perfume. Right? I mean, there was this diverse group of people. They were different, but they were united in an expectancy of what can be. Because hopeful partnership is rooted in an expectancy of what can be. And this group of people was rooted in that. But they also were bought in and believed to the truth that they were more together than they were apart. 
You see, they believed they were more together than they were apart. And one of the truths for us today, when we think about hopeful partnership, is this truth that just like they were more together than they were apart, we are more together than we are apart. We are more together than we are apart. You see, the men and women that came alongside Nehemiah in locked arms and hopeful partnership, they understood that if any one of them had tried to go about this rebuilding the wall on their own, that ultimately they would fail. In fact, many had probably tried. But they knew, they were convinced that if all of them jumped in and served side by side by side by side, that they could experience victory, that the walls could be rebuilt. They were more together than they were apart. Look at how uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 expresses this truth that we are more together than we are apart. Starting in verse 9, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? We are more together than we are apart. This is how he says it in verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We are more together than we are apart. Though one may be overpowered in partnership, in hopeful partnership, and rooted in an expectancy of what can be, victory is possible. The impossible is possible. Let's think together for a moment. I'm going to ask you, think of one moment in your life when you were able to accomplish something with the help of others that you could have never accomplished on your own. Just think of one scenario in your life, right? Most of us have one of those, don't we? I mean, sure we do. It's whether you have one or or if you don't, maybe there's somebody around you that you've experienced that. Well, let me share uh, one of mine uh, with you. You know, if you get to know me, you'll realize that I'm one of those people that sometimes will um, say something without thinking through it. All right, you guys know somebody like that? You know, that they just speak and and haven't necessarily thought through the ripple of that. Well, I had an instance a year ago, actually, uh, almost a year ago exactly, where one of my friends was getting ready to retire. All right, And, and in my love for him and out of my love for him, I made sure that I harassed him about being a little advanced and aged and, you know, at just just cracking jokes at him. That's what you do when you love somebody. Um, And so anyways, as I'm razzing him, I decided, and I have no idea where this came from, to go, hey, what do you think? With all your extra time now, besides sleeping in, why don't you do something crazy like, you know, train for a triathlon or something crazy like that? And he made some sarcastic remark back to me because we both have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. and, and, (laughs) And he made a remark back and I said, I'll tell you what, if you do it, I'll do it with you. Not smart. Not at all. Because long story short, within a matter of days, I was registered for a triathlon. All right? Now, let me be clear. Some of you may not know what a triathlon is. A triathlon is a race that's marked by three events. All right? You, you start with the swim. Then you get on a bike and you bike for a certain uh, distance. And then you put on your running shoes and you run. All right, and so let's be clear, all right? When it comes to swimming, I, I am more like a pontoon boat than I am a speedboat, all right? In fact, um, you know, the first time I jumped in the pool to swim a lap, I mean, I had swam with my kids, you know, you have fun and whatnot. Well, I literally, as I got to the end of my first lap, 25 yards of this swim, I was convinced that Jesus was returning, all right? I mean, there were, I was seeing lights that I'd never seen before, and, and I learned apparently that you're not supposed to hold your breath the entire time that you're swimming, right? <laughs> It was terrible. 
I mean, when it comes to biking, I mean, maybe, maybe in the last five years combined, I had biked 10 miles as I biked, you know, messed around with my kids. And when it came to running, I've already shared with our, you know, us as a church family that, that I'm not built for speed and agility, all right? I am built for stability and high winds, all right? That is what I'm built for. <laughs> And so here I am, registered for a triathlon because my mouth got in the way. And well, fast forward four months, right? Four months after hours and hours and hours and miles and miles and miles, June 17th of 2017 came. Let me, let me show you a couple pictures here. This is a picture of me at the starting point. All right, you're welcome for this visual. Everyone pr appreciates that. All right, but this is me at the starting point. I got my little swim cap on. I'm ready to jump in the water because the race starts. You run off the beach and you get in the water and you, you swim. In this case, it was 600 yards. So I got back. I made it through the swim. I go charging up the hill. I throw on my, my clothes and my biking shoes, and here's a picture of me on the 15-mile bike ride. And, and so I, I got through that, and, I, and then I, you know, I get in, I transition zone, I put my bike away, I take my biking shoes off, I throw on my running shoes, and here I am somewhere in the 5K, all right? I saw the cameraman, that's why I'm halfway smiling. But, and so I come to the end of the run, and one hour, 38 minutes, and 58 seconds late, 55 seconds later, here's a picture of me at the finish line, all right? So here's, here's one more of me after I'm done. I got to tell you, I'm a little bitter. For running that whole thing, all I got was a wet towel. And I don't know what that means. But, but at the end of the day, like, this was great. This was a cool event. I got to tell you, like, that sense of accomplishment that I had when I finished was awesome. I mean, it was, it was great to run alongside others who were, who were doing that. But I got to tell you, and let me be really clear. If it wasn't for the partnership with other men and women who came alongside me in that four months of training, I would have never finished this race. Not a chance. And I don't mean that to like demean myself. I'm just telling you, it is not possible that I would have finished the race if it wasn't for a friend of mine who is a swim instructor that actually taught me how to swim and to breathe. There is no way I would have done that. I'd be in the bottom of the lake right now, all right? And if it wasn't for the hours upon hours spent with this guy here, um, this is the joker that got me involved in this whole mess, all right? If it wasn't the hours spent with him in a pool or on a bike or, or running together, um, I wouldn't have made it. In fact, here's another picture of us before the race. This is kind of like that whole sun's out, guns out idea, all right? So this is us before. In fact, there's another guy named Bob who literally, I kind of jokingly called Coach Bob because he literally taught Jim and I both. Jim, by the way, had retired and ran a triathlon, which I think is awesome, all right? But this, this Bob taught us how to, how to run a triathlon, how to train for those things. If it wasn't for the countless hours on a bike next to this guy, all right, hundreds of hours on the trail over there in, in Davenport and Bettendorf, I wouldn't have been ready to ride the bike. And this doesn't include the, the miles that I ran with Bob or the time in the pool with Sean or, you know, the, the number of chiropractors and healthcare professionals that helped me keep my body together, right? And of course, my cheering section the day of, if it wasn't for their support there, you know, there is no way that I would have made it. Because we are more together than we are apart. When we lock arms together with an anticipation, an expectation of what can be, we can see the impossible happen. You know, we see this lived out in uh, the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. It says this, from that day on, you see, when Nehemiah and the, the group got to work, uh, they faced significant opposition. Their, their safety was at risk. There were people that wanted to attack them and kill them and derail this whole building of the wall. So he says, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. 
the officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we were widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is saying this work is extensive. We're spread out. The enemy wants to, to take us out. But if you hear the trumpet, come running because we're going to fight together. And he says this. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by day and as workers by night. Neither I nor my brothers, nor the men, nor the guards who took uh, with me took off their clothes, which I just think is disgusting little element of this story. But it says each had his weapon. And even when he went for water, you see, I love this scripture and the truth within it that we are more together than we are apart. You know, the visual of the men in verse 17 who said, you know, those who gathered the supplies did so with their supplies in one hand and their sword in the other. And they'd go about working that way day by day by day. And if they heard that trumpet and if somebody was in danger, they would drop their materials and they would run to wherever that trumpet was blown so that they could join side by side and fight. You see, they, we are more together than we are apart. And that's a powerful visual of that. It's not just a powerful visual of that truth. It's also, I think, a great representation when Jesus in John chapter 17 prays for us and he prays for unity. I think this is a powerful picture of unity in action. You see, many think unity is, our partnership is sameness. In other words, that we do the same thing in the same place. We talk the same language. We go about it the same way. And I got to tell you, unity is not sameness. Unity is oneness. Unity is not sameness. It's oneness. Think about it. Depending on where those people found themselves on the wall, there were different things that needed to be done. And depending on their, their, their wiring and how they were gifted or, or the knowledge that they had, they may go about rebuilding that portion of the wall differently. So they were very different, but they were unified in purpose. They were unified in an expectancy of what could be. Because unity is not about sameness. It's about oneness. And you see, let me pause for a second. This is really core to who we are as a church, especially as we seek to go about in our missional posture about seeing our cities transform with the gospel to, to seek the peace and the prosperity of our cities. We are committed to, to joining alongside others in hopeful partnership, other organizations and other ministries that share that same expectancy of what our cities can be. In fact, it's those ministries that we support in our faith promise giving. And, um, you know, for those of you who maybe have heard this before and those of you who are giving, I just want to say thank you. It's on a weekly basis right now. I hear from many of our partners that we are locked arm in arm with in hopeful partnership, how God is at work and how the kingdom is advancing. And I just want to say thank you for those of, who, of you who have given. And for those of you maybe are like, what is that all about? What is that thing he's holding up? I encourage you, these brochures are right out in our, in our lobbies at our, at our scent tables and kind of our next steps area. I encourage you to grab one. Check it out. Look at the partners that we are locking arm in arm with in hopeful partnership, seeking to see our cities transformed with the gospel and and as you engage those, maybe God will stir in your heart to join in and be part of the giving with this. But I got to tell you, our God is doing really, really cool things. 
We are more together than we are apart. We are more together than we are apart. And when we lock arms together in hopeful partnership, we can see the impossible happen. But can I tell you this weekend, hopeful partnership is rare. It's rare. And you may ask, well, why is that rare? Like when, when, when so much is possible when we work together, why is hopeful partnership rare? And, and let me camp in this just for a moment. And if I could boil it down, why it is so rare, if I could boil that down into one word, the word would be pride. Pride. You see, hopeful partnership requires a humility. Think about it. In order to invite others in to lock arms with you and I in hopeful partnership, we have to be willing in a posture of humility to admit that we can't do it on our own. Or we have to express humility in acknowledging that we may not have the right answers. Or how about the, the humility that's needed to say, you know what, we are more committed about seeing what we have an expectancy that can happen lived out, that we don't need the credit, right? The humility to say, you know what, we don't care if we get credit. A lot of times around heritage, maybe you've heard us say that we don't want to be the hero of the story. We want those who are on the front lines to be the hero of the story. Or more importantly, we want Jesus to be the hero of the story. But it requires humility to live in that way. Or let me take it maybe a little more close to home for you and I. If there's an area of brokenness in us, an area of rubble, an area of struggle, it takes humility to admit to others that I'm broken. That there's an area in my life where I need some help, that I need you to partner with me to see transformation and breakthrough. You see, we're more together than we are apart, but it requires humility for us to engage with others in hopeful partnership. And it's this posture of humility that we see in the life of Nehemiah and those who linked arms with him. In fact, for nearly two months, these men and women linked arms and served and fought. And then look what's recorded in Nehemiah chapter six. It says, so the wall was what? Completed. The wall was completed on the 25th day of Eel in 52 days. How many days? 52 days. And when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. And they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 52 days. 52 days. Walls that had been in ruins for over 150 years were restored in 52 days because one man was willing to live out spiritual intensity, to take faithful risk, to join God in the passionate mission that he had called him to out of a posture of authentic love because he was willing to lock arms with others in hopeful partnership. In 52 days, the impossible happened. And I love that story. Isn't it a cool story? I mean, it's a great story. But I want to share with you something that many times when I read this story that I just wonder about. I wonder why God didn't just rebuild the walls himself. Think about it. I mean, 52 days is super impressive. We'd all agree, right? But I wonder, why didn't God just rebuild the walls himself? As impressive as 52 days is, let's be real. God could have restored those walls in an instant, 150 years before that. So why didn't God just rebuild them himself? Well, let me tell you why. And every time I think about this, it just blows my mind. The reason why God didn't rebuild them himself was because our God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the ones who created billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies, the one in scripture who says he's the author and perfecter of our faith and sustainer of our faith, and not just our faith, but our very lives, the, the very God who could have created that wall in an instant, 
chooses to use his people. He chooses to work through us, for us to join him. God chose Nehemiah and that group of men and women to join him in rebuilding the wall. And that blows my mind. But what's even more amazing to me is that our God continues to choose to work through his people today. That's mind-boggling to me. And this is where kind of this, this gets a little complicated for us. Because we read a story like Nehemiah and, and go, you know, see that the walls are rebuilt. And, and we, it's easy for us to step back and go, you know what? Of course God chose Nehemiah. I mean, this was a guy who loved him. This was a guy who was in a position of prominence. This was a guy who was well-connected and was wealthy. He could go to people and he could get resources and the things that he needed. And we can say, of course God can choose somebody like Nehemiah. But there's no way he would choose to work through me. There's no way he'd choose me to join him. I mean, after all, God, God knows about my brokenness and how sinful I am. Or God knows about my marriage that's in shambles or the, that I've been through a divorce or two or three. Or God knows about the addiction that I wrestle with. Or God knows about that deep, dark secret in my closet that I don't know anybody else to know about. Or God knows about my, my criminal history or, you know, the heinous crimes that I've committed. And we step back and we say, of course God would choose Nehemiah. But there's no way that God would choose me to join him. He would choose me to work in him. And for all of us this weekend, I want this truth to seep down into the depths of our soul. Because the truth is, is that God chooses us to join him. God chooses us to join him. And for some of you, you might want to cross out us and put me. God chooses me in my sinfulness to join him. God chooses me, even though I'm broken, to join him. God chooses me, regardless of my story, to join him. God chooses me, regardless if I'm in a position of prominence or I'm the low man on the totem pole. God chooses me. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 15. These are red letters in your Bible. They came from the words of Jesus. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose who? You. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, a fruit will, that will last. I've chosen you that you might go and bear fruit, that you might go rebuild the ruins, that you might go rebuild the wall. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. God has chosen us. God has chosen you. God has chosen me to join him. God has chosen us to be saved. Think about it. Let me say it this way. If you were the only person on this earth, God would have chosen you. Jesus would have come for you. He would have died on the cross for you. He would have bore your sin and your shame because he loves you. God chooses you. And he says, if you'll just come to me, I'll transform you. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. God would have chosen you and me, even if we were the only people. But God didn't just choose us to save us. God chose us that we might bear fruit, that we might see the impossible happen, that we may be a people who are chosen by him, who lock arms with others in hopeful partnership with an expectancy of what can be, that we might be a people that humble ourselves and say, you know what? We are more together than we are apart because when we live in that way and we implement and live out the building blocks we've been talking about, the impossible can happen. The walls that have been ruins for 150 years can be restored. And so you may be asking, so what? What does that mean, Justin, for me? What does that mean for us uh, this weekend? And, and so as we conclude kind of our message today, our time in the Word, and really as we conclude this building blocks conversations, at least for now, and, and the story of Nehemiah, I think it would be helpful for us to just be reminded of something today. 
You see, the, the story of Nehemiah and the conversations that we've been having aren't really about a physical wall being restored. Right? I mean, the physical wall is important. I mean, especially for those who are within that city. I mean, that physical wall represented safety and security. But what's important for us to understand is that that physical wall around Jerusalem represented God's glory. It represented God's reputation. It was God's glory and his reputation that were at stake. And because of Nehemiah, and because of those who joined alongside him in rebuilding the wall, living out spiritual intensity and faithful risk and passionate mission and authentic love and hopeful partnership, because they were willing to do that, God was glorified. The walls were rebuilt and people were drawn back to him. And that's simply because of this truth here today, that restored rubble leads to revival. Restored rubble leads to revival. Now I realize that revival comes loaded with definition for many of us, all right? Whether you've been in the church or maybe you're new to church, you've maybe heard the word revival and it's loaded with definition for you. And I want to be really clear what I'm talking about when I say revival. You see, the restoration of the physical walls around Jerusalem led to what God desired all along and that his people would be drawn back to him, that they would return to him. Revival is a returning to God. And so in Nehemiah chapter 6, we see the walls are restored. In chapter 8, Nehemiah gathers all of the people in Jerusalem, and they're all standing there. And in chapter 8, Ezra, the priest, gets up and he reads the book of the law to everyone. And in chapter 9, verse 3, look at how the people respond. It says, they stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And some of you think church is long these days, right? <laughs> and he spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Three chapters later, as they're dedicating this new wall that had been restored in verse 43 of chapter 12, it says, and on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away because re re restored rubble leads to revival. Restored rubble leads to people returning to God. The physical wall was not what this story is about. The physical wall being restored was about getting people to return to him. And I'll tell you, what I see is true today in, in, our, in our world is that there are spaces of rubble and brokenness all around us. There are spaces of rubble and broken walls all over our cities. And, and even to bring it a little closer to home, there are spaces of rubble and brokenness in our lives that God longs to restore so that others would return to him. That relationship that you have that is in rubble right now, is in ruins, God longs to restore that so others would be drawn to him. That addiction that you're wrestling with, God longs to set you free so that others can see the power of God at work within you and be drawn to him, to return to him. Your marriage that's on the rocks and on the verge of divorce, I want you to know that God longs to restore it, and not just to restore it to what it was. He longs to make it better than ever before, not just so that you survive, but so you thrive, so that others can see the power of God at work in your marriage and return to him. There's areas of brokenness all over our cities and hurt and pain that God longs to restore so that others in our cities will know that Jesus is alive and that they will return to him. God longs to restore the rubble and the brokenness in our lives. But I got to tell you, he chooses us to be part of that work. He chooses you and I to pursue him with spiritual intensity through prayer. 
He chooses you and I to take faithful risk. He chooses you and I to join the passionate mission, the divine purpose and divine power that he has for us. He chooses us. He chooses us to pursue him and others with an authentic love. He chooses you and I to to lock arms with others in hopeful partnership with an expectancy of what can be because he knows if we live this way, those areas of rubble in and around us can be restored and we and others will be drawn back to him. Revival can take place. Restored rubble leads to revival. And so as we conclude our time together this weekend, I want to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit stirring in you? Like I told you earlier, as I've been praying that we would pursue his word with a desperation, I know that God is speaking and will continue to speak. So let me ask you, what is the Holy Spirit stirring in you as your next step today? There's a few lines on your, on your teaching outline that you can write that down. If you're like me, I'll forget before I get to the parking lot if I don't write it down. So I encourage you, write it down. Perhaps this question will help you process what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, is where is partnership needed in your life today? Where is partnership needed in your life today? Maybe it's a space of brokenness and ruins in you. We're God is saying, humble yourself. Invite others in. Invite them to link arms with you in hopeful partnership. Or maybe it's an area of ruins or brokenness in, in spaces where you find yourself in your, in your workplace or in your home or in your neighborhood, somewhere in your cities. Maybe that's a space where the Holy Spirit is encouraging you to lock arms with others in hopeful partnership with an expectancy of what can be. Or maybe for some, you maybe change this question to where is expectancy needed in your life today? Where have you maybe given up on what can be because of what is? Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to stir within you a new expectancy. Or maybe the question for you is, where is hope needed in your life today? Where have you given up? Where have you in the, have in the face of despair just fallen there and are laying in the ruins where God is saying, I want to give you hope? I don't know what the Holy Spirit is stirring in you today, but I know that he's longing for you to take a next step. He's longing for you and I to be the chosen people of God that lock arms together with an expectancy of what can be, believing that we are more together than we are apart so that others can be drawn into relationship with him. You see, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store, what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's my prayer for us as a church that we will be part of the story that God is writing, drawing others back to himself as we are a people who pursue him with spiritual intensity, who take faithful risks, who join in the passion and mission, who love him and others with an authentic love and are humble ourselves to lock arms with others in hopeful partnership. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. God, it is humbling to know that even in our brokenness, even with our stories, God, that you have chosen us to join you. And Lord, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to stir in us um, what our next step is. God, if it's an area of an ex- uh, expectancy, God, that you want to stir within us, I pray that you do that. Give us eyes to see what can be. Lord, if it's an area where we have embraced despair, God, may hope break forth. And may today, we, may we humble ourselves to lock arms with others in hopeful partnership, whether it's to address ruins in our life or in our, in our cities. But God, may we embrace that we are more together then we are a park. God, and I pray that you would do something just like you did when you rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem through this team. God, that others around us will step back and go, surely God is working on their behalf. So God, we give you praise and our heart's desire 
is that just like the rejoicing in Jerusalem was heard from lands far away, may there be rejoicing that starts in this space, in our cities, that has a ripple all throughout our region and our country for eternity to come. And we'll give you all the praise, Jesus, because you and you alone are worthy of the glory. And give you praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.